From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Fleury. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking to scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as guest speakers and lecturers to the UGA campus. Joining us on this episode of Unscripted is Chad Smith, former Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation. A major figure in Indian affairs, Smith has advocated on Native issues nationally and internationally, including at the United Nations. Smith served as professor at Dartmouth College teaching Cherokee history and Native American law. He is an author of books on leadership, art, and Native American worldviews, including Leadership Lessons from the Cherokee Nation, Learn from All I Observe. Chad Smith, welcome to Unscripted. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. You're visiting the University of Georgia as part of the Signature Lecture Series. Your lecture, Cherokee Removal and the Trail of Tears, the Unlearned Lessons of Populism Today, looks at the rise of a hard-edged populism going back to Andrew Jackson, leading to the Cherokee removal from their homeland in Georgia and elsewhere in the Southeast. You then relate that example to what it tells us about the current political situation in the United States, and I kind of wanted to jump in right there with the subject of the lecture. Andrew Jackson cuts a dichotomous figure in American history. On one hand, he's still venerated by many politicians and a few presidents as a leader who secured the future of democracy in America. At the same time, he was also a staunch supporter of slavery and policies that forcibly removed Indians from their lands. The U.S. is a land of great contradictions, and there are far more than two sides to the legacy of Andrew Jackson. How do you see those principles associated with him echoing in the country today? Well, Andrew Jackson, he was a participant of war and a phenomenal cultural change and economic uh, expansion for that period of time. In so many ways, it, it's, we, it almost becomes tried to compare him with the current leadership. Uh, what is more important is who was behind Jackson, what was the driving forces, what were the interests that led to the Trail of Tears. And when we get deep into that, I think we find that it's not populism. It's the simpler things in life like greed, desire for power, um, which may be issues that are popping up today in, in the current political environment. But the Trail of Tears is a story that has so many layers and, and dimensions, North versus South, states' rights versus federalism, tribal efforts to maintain its uh, integrity, and just survival. What is sometimes lost in the political discussion of the Trail of Tears is to go back to see really what it, how it was based. The Cherokees had been in North Georgia, Southeast United States for centuries. That's where they built their homes. That's where they buried their ancestors. That's where they knew where you went to fish and to hunt and to where your cousins were and where your uncles were and where you had this massive network of clans and family and community. It was home. For uh, any policy, political, economic, cultural, to wrestle people away from their homes and to export them, to move them uh, 900 miles away into, at that time, a 
almost a wasteland, just brings into questions of morality, brings into questions of how do you make difficult decisions in the midst of, of chaos. Do you think um, a lot of the the way that we're able to do that is because we think about people and actions and sort of abstractions. I feel like if people were, if they thought even more closely about the history that you just recounted, if you had connected people and families to a region and what had happened to them, maybe we'd be a little more reluctant to embrace such politics? Well, of course. Uh, there were diaries uh, during the Trail of Tears, and basically the Trail of Tears was <clears throat> the fraudulent treaty in 1835 uh, when it was executed uh, about 14,000 Cherokees were rounded up and put in stockades or concentration camps uh, pending forced removal. This first started by river and then it was by land. But some of the stories from those concentration camps, it was just heartbreaking. There's a little child, his name was Nugent. He died at two years of age in a prisoner of war camp. Can you imagine that in the United States? A two-year-old child dying in, in essence, a prisoner camp in uh, 1838. But then again, let's just look at the border. We look at the cages. We see children uh, dying in camps. Uh, and so there's one thing about history that is almost unchallenged. It, it repeats itself. <laughs> and so what can we do to avoid the severity of that repetition? Educating ourselves, understanding what we've done and what we can do, maybe our capabilities. There's, there's many answers, and so because there's not one, a lot of people just eschew the question itself. I agree. But once you learn those lessons, it brings a sense of uh, clarity to how you make decisions. I think it's a, one of the greatest sins, complacency, is to stand by and just watch and so it's beyond your pay grade. I had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C., to the Holocaust Museum, and it was always terrifying. But the most powerful thing I saw is as you exit, they had a little white TV, small one, and they had actually video to, uh, filmed the people of Auschwitz after the, the uh, liberation and, they, and the, the town was only a few miles away from the camp. And so every day, the townspeople, they knew what was going. The trains, thousands of people came. Nobody left. They saw the smoke in the sky. And so they had the townspeople go through the camp. And you should see their faces as they emerged from the camp. They were horrified, the townspeople. And the powerful lesson there was they were complacent. They knew what was going on. They didn't say anything. And then maybe... They couldn't, but it was the same thing that we see in the Trail of Tears, the complacency, and that's what the lesson that should be learned for today. How can we be complacent when we see horrors going on? You were principal chief of the Cherokee Nation for about 12 years. Yes. For us to understand the role of a chief, you're the politician, you're, you're the leading politician for a large polity, a large group. Yes, and I have to confess that I'm a recovering politician, <laughs> but also share the sin of being a lawyer and a historian. Of, 
But also with tribes, in particular the Cherokee Nation, the five tribes, we also are CEOs of a fairly large operation. We have, when I took office in 1999, we had 2,500 employees when I left in 2000, 2011. We had 8,500 employees. We had a gross income of $1.2 billion. We were, had businesses in aerospace, gaming, um, a whole host of diversity of businesses besides the governmental operations of law enforcement, education, housing, health, and such. Mm-hmm. And so we had the opportunity to learn best practices to best serve our people. Where do you learn those best practices from? Uh, there's a difference between American law and federal Indian law. Um, but is it, is, it a, is it an amalgam taking from various um, methods or, or, or patterns that, that have been successful in the past? It is. Generally, law law is almost a common law through the United States with cities and towns and tribes all following the basic principles of constitutional law. They may be articulated in different ways, but mm-hmm. the fundamentals are there. And organized similarly with courts and yes. such. Yeah. Yes. The, the difference is, is how sometimes you execute those laws. And, um, for example, the Indian Child Welfare Act, there's a preference for placement with children from your family and then your extended family, and only under dire circumstances is a child placed outside the tribe. And that's dramatically different than the white world. Mm. You know, if a child comes up for adoption, it's really not an issue of are they placed Blood with Blood relation. Or, right, yeah, right, right. And so there, there's a lot of local custom and law that is followed in Indian country. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a lot of commonality between among tribes? Oh, yes, yeah. We share case decisions, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's almost become a common law. Oh, I see, I see. But you don't share court systems. No, oh. every tribe has its own court. It's appellate court. It's not subject to federal review. It's mm-hmm. there's an 1893 case, Talton versus Mays, which really brings things to clarity. Uh, Talton was the uh, guy that was convicted for murder. Mays was the chief, and he had a pretty good defense lawyer, and he said, "Well." The, the prosecution is infirm because he wasn't indicted with the requisite number of grand jurors required by the United States Constitution. Went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, hey, guys, the tribe is not subject to the United States Constitution. They're a separate, independent sovereign. Murder is a local offense. They can prosecute it the way they want to. The tribes existed long before there was ever a United States. And so Talton went back and got hung. I've I've often thought about that very thing. I don't th- I don't think we have a, a very good understanding of that sort of separateness in that way. I guess it's easy to think about the fact that there are several countries within a country in mm-hmm. the United States, but this is a very explicit demarcation. It's fun in Oklahoma. We were doing something uh, with the oil industry. Oil oil is big in Oklahoma. They're the big power brokers. And one of the oilmen said, "Why do you guys want to set up territories within our state?" And, of course, our response is, why do you want to create a state around our territories? <laughs> they long existed before there was a state of Oklahoma. <laughs> and you became a state subject to those tribal territories. Yeah, I just feel like there's so many of our fellow countrymen that we know little about, even though we have these cliche ideas about them. And like we alluded to earlier, it allows us a certain latitude and some negative directions because of that. The thing about sovereignty is you're free to make decisions. And some of those decisions are good and some of those decisions are bad. 
A lot of tribes make bad decisions, but the whole idea of sovereignty is, is that. Mm-hmm. A lot of countries make bad decisions. I was getting ready to go there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills, from languages and literature to biological sciences, build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to be informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. Welcome back to Unscripted. I'm speaking with Chad Smith, former principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Maybe if you could, if you would explain a little bit to me about how leaders are elected. Is it is it is a is it a parallel democracy? The way that the tribes govern themselves. Generally, since the 1930s, uh, tribes have fallen into two general categories of governance. Uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs had tremendous influence with the passage of the the Indian Reorganization Act and the Oklahoma Indian Welfare Acts in the 1930s because previous assimilation pro- policies had failed. And so pretty much on the western side of the country, the tribes adopted a Indian Reorganization Act constitution, which is a cookie-cutter template by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And generally, it provided for a tribal council and a chairman. And so on the west side of the country... The elected officials are called tribal chairman, which is a bit of an anomaly because tribes never had boards or chairmen and right. such. They had chiefs or headmen. Or for the Cherokee Nation, we had uh, principal chiefs, and Chickasaws had a governor. <clears throat> but other tribes adopted a true constitutional model of government with a separate branches of government for the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive. But we always muse that the United States got their idea of democracy from our cousins, the the Iroquois Confederation up in New York. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin studied them for the model of democracy. So it wasn't Locke. <laughs> <laughs> um, earlier, you and I were talking about uh, Sequoia, and then you brought up a really interesting analog, actually a, a post-log, um, Will Rogers, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I find very fascinating, actually. Well, Will Rogers was born in the Cherokee Nation in Indian Territory in the 1880s before it was part of the governance of the United States. And so those born in the Cherokee Nation were Cherokee Nation citizens, and they weren't United States citizens. It's only in 1902, the Special Act of Congress, that Cherokees became citizens of the United States. So Will Rogers was not a natural-born citizen. <laughs> he became naturalized by Congressional Act with the other Cherokees. His mom and dad both went to our, our junior colleges. We had the first institution of higher education west of the Mississippi, built in 1851. His dad was a senator in the Cherokee Nation Senate. Uh, and so they were leaders in the Cherokee Nation, and their sort of wayward son went to, on a world tour, and he came back and— his very simple uh, demeanor caught the uh, imagination of an entire country and became the favorite son. Which is very, which is putting it mildly, actually. Yeah. Yeah, he was more than famous at, in that, during that time. Mm-hmm. He had the largest readership share for his column, the largest listening share for his radio program. He was at the top of the box office with his movies in the 1930s. So I think history can record him as the most listened to, read, 
and watched man uh, at all times. Who's thought of as an American, but he's a naturalized American. Exactly. <laughs> he was an alien. <laughs> <laughs> so you're back on campus. You're returning to, to the university from which you graduated. You're an alumnus. Yes, 1973. And I thank the university for the opportunity. They had a cohort program for teaching Indians to uh, become teachers. And without that assistance in that cohort environment, I don't think I would have graduated. And uh, so the, the university and Marion Rice, the, the director of that program, a, a great uh, debt of gratitude. Wow, that's fascinating. So you're back on campus. It's, it's changed a little bit. Yeah. When I was here, we didn't have a winning football team. <laughs> <laughs> Your lecture today, it's a politically fraught environment that we're in. And in a lot of ways, it's a golden opportunity to talk about some of this, to, to talk about the connection between populism and the Trail of Tears. I think all lessons of history are, are valuable because how you can carry them forward and what principles they contain. And so it's a sort of a case study. And I guess the, the uh, point is, is that, um, let me just tell you a brief story if you, if you get some patience. So Please. When I was here, when I arrived on campus in 1971, the program had a graduate advisor. So I sat down at the table with him first day and he, he wrote out eight things I needed to do and places to go. He was very patient and a nice guy. And I was offended. I said, well, I'm a college student. I'm a sophomore. I can get myself around. I don't need somebody patronizing me and writing these things out. So I leave the building, and I get 40 feet outside the building. I look around campus, this math place, and I look at I thought, thank God I got this <laughs> to-do list by this guy. It was a great lesson for me, a great lesson in humility. And basically, I think that the thing about the Trail of Tears is that, and what I want to share with folks today is what will you, you remember when you get 40 feet outside the door? And what I want uh, people to remember when they get 40 feet outside the door, that to make a moral decision in a time of conflict is difficult, but you don't have an excuse not to do it. And so that's the con that's the message for and using the Trail of Tears as the story to deliver that message. And if I can accomplish a little bit of that, that uh, some of the young folks that attend that lecture, when they leave 40 feet outside the door, look around the environment and say, hey, we're in a time of uh, crisis. We're in a time of confusion and chaos. And there are moral, there's a moral decision to be made, and it is our responsibility to make it. And not retreat from it. Exactly. Well, I hope it's a message that resonates, and I trust that it will. Chad Smith, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to talk with you. My pleasure. Thank you.